Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our regular series called Final Thoughts, where we hear final thoughts from people who are dying and also final thoughts from folks about their loved ones, eulogies, tributes, etc. Anything that stirs the soul about someone lost. This week's Final Thoughts feature is from Tim Carney. Tim is the senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His story is about his late nephew, J.P. Kilner, whose namesake, Pope John Paul II, was born on this day in history in 1920. Here is Tim's moving tribute. Nothing can prepare you for seeing your one-year-old nephew in a casket. Nothing can take away his parents' agony, and nobody could have expected how much good work this helpless baby would do in just 14 months. John Paul Kilner was born with an advanced case of spinal muscular atrophy. He was nearly paralyzed at birth, and his body just deteriorated further as he grew. My sister-in-law, Elena, and her husband, Pat, brought JP home as soon as possible and began the 24-hour-a-day job of keeping him alive. Someone was always at JP's side, monitoring blood oxygen levels, suctioning mucus through his tracheostomy tube. If Elena's younger sister, Suzanne, who then became a nurse, or a hired nurse named Donise weren't on duty, either Pat or Elena just did without sleep. Daily saving the life of an immobile kid with a fatal disease raises some fundamental questions. What is the point of such a life? That raises a prior question. What is the purpose of any life? Pat and Elena are devout Catholics from strong families, but their answer to this question can't be set aside as some teaching in the catechism. It's the truth written on the human heart. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is our purpose. This view is not uniquely Christian. It's understood in other religions and in secular worldviews. In this regard, John Paul lived a superior life. He exuded love. Before he lost control of his facial muscles, he beamed smiles that, on multiple occasions, made grown men literally sob. Babies can love those around them with the pure, unconditional love that we all should show. Also, JP drew love out of others. Neighbors, relatives, strangers cooked meals, gave time and equipment and money to help the killers. JP's brothers and sisters showered him with affection, and Pat and Elena sacrificed immensely to care for him. Before the wake at St. Patrick's in Rockville, during an observance called Stations of the Cross, we read a gospel passage in which Christ explains our duty to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to visit the sick. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, 
you did for me. Clearly a call to charity. This is also an exaltation of parenthood. Even more so, this exalts the work of caring for helpless JP. Tribulations both reveal character and form it. JP's struggles revealed his parents' heroic virtue and fostered virtue in others. Pat and Elena saw John Paul as a blessing, and they generously shared that blessing with the world. They took him wherever they could, in a chair rigged with a ventilator and an IV. Elena shared even wider by penning hopeful, contemplative letters to John Paul every few weeks, which she posted on a blog. One friend of mine, who never met the Kilners, read the Letters to John Paul blog. She wrote me, John Paul's story made me want to be a better person. John Paul continued shaping souls even in dying. A priest at St. Patrick's took confessions during and after the wake. He commented afterwards that he heard some of the more honest, searching, and contrite confessions he's ever heard. More than 500 people attended the funeral. One non-Catholic mourner was moved so much by the Mass, she told Pat, Now I understand why you're Catholic. So John Paul, who never spoke a word in his life, was the greatest evangelist of love, faith, virtue, and hope I have ever met. I don't think Pat and Elena foresaw all this as a sacrifice and toiled for JP. They just did what was right, understanding the, quote, incomparable worth of the human person, in the words of JP's namesake, Pope John Paul II. Father Drew Royals, Pat's high school friend, gave the homily. He said to Pat and Elena, You saw so clearly that John Paul's life possessed a dignity that was radically equal to that of everybody else. His medical condition was simply the battlefield upon which this young warrior prince would carry out his campaign. At the funeral mass, we mourned a calamity. The pain of JP's death pierces the heart again and again. Also, we thanked God that we were blessed with John Paul for 442 days. Father Drew reminded us, this blessing carries with it a great responsibility. If our love for this little one has enlarged our hearts, then that means that now we must love all the more. Your work is not done. And he will raise you up on eagle's wings. And this is Lee Habib. That was Tim Carney. And John Paul's story made me want to be a better person. My favorite line from that piece. And of course, it's true, as John Paul II said. It proved the incomparable worth of the human person. This is Lee Habib. Final thoughts. Our American stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite weekly stories, Random Acts of Kindness. 
You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave your story there. We've all got one. Either we received a random act of kindness, if we're lucky enough, we've actually gone ahead and given them out. As you'll see, these things tend to take on a life of their own. Today, we're bringing you two classics that we found on randomactsofkindness.org. The first story is about a young lady named Hannah Brencher. She won the Random Acts of Kindness Challenge a few years ago and has only sped up from there. Let's listen to Hannah tell her story. Ever since I was a child, it was like my dream to move to New York City and become a writer. I moved right after graduating from college. Very quickly, I started to become very sad and very lonely and didn't know how to really tell my friends or family about it. Depression had been this ugly word to me growing up and it was something that happens to other people. It was becoming harder to get up in the morning. It was becoming harder to be in conversation with people. I just felt very worthless. One day I was on the train and a woman came onto the train from the platform. She looked lonely, she looked downtrodden, she looked sad. I pulled out a notebook and I wrote her a letter and it just, it felt like I had been doing it for years. I noticed something happened in that moment where I just, I forgot about myself and I forgot about the sadness and the worthlessness. There was this resolution in my mind that if if this is how this letter writing makes me feel, then I am going to do it as much as I possibly can. I basically made a promise to people, like if you need a handwritten letter for any reason at all, I don't care who you are and I don't care where you've been, I will write it to you. My inbox just started to fill up with letter requests. It was women struggling with loneliness in Japan and New Zealand. It was girls being bullied. It was boys moving to new cities. I realized very quickly that people don't need you to relate to them. They don't need you to have all the right words. I think that sometimes life just calls us to have words, you know, just to be there and show up for somebody when they are losing all hope. It didn't matter that I was sad, that I was lonely, that I was depressed. I could be that for somebody else and I wasn't gonna miss the opportunity to do that says that I have too much mail, so I need to go to the front and pick it up. This one's from Australia. Missouri. Korea. There we go. Here's a Korea one. Southboro, Massachusetts. This one is from Romania. I started the organization morelovelettersdotcom. The whole thing started with one love letter and one lonely girl on a train, and that escalated into 400 letters, and then it turned into 12 team writers. That spiraled into 11,000 letters being mailed in 49 countries in all 50 states. I've taken any letter that's really meant something to me in the past year or two, and I've just kept it along the walls. We're making sure they're good love letters and then we're going to be mailing them off to people. You never meet these people, but you know that you're doing a little something that's going to encourage them. Everything is emails and Facebook and Instagram. I'm writing you a letter. This is coming from my heart. This isn't just a part of the everyday technology. I just felt so lost and disconnected. One day, somebody said, you have a letter. And I, I must have read it a hundred times. You deserve a life packed full with fresh air and hot summers, surrounded by people who love and care about you. She knew how to just say, you know, I'm sorry you feel this way. 
and you're not alone. I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. I have never felt this much joy and this much happiness, and it's because it's like my life isn't about me anymore. To be able to put your words onto a piece of paper is, in a sense, to tell your story, and I think that our stories are the most powerful things that we hold in this world. And so if my story can go out on dozens and dozens of pieces of paper, somebody can hold that at the end of a day. To me, there's nothing more powerful or awesome than that. And what a great story. You know, it's interesting, John Stuart Mill, the great philosopher, had puzzled over happiness for much of his life and wrote a book about it or an essay called The Happiness Paradox. And what he discovered was, was that people who pursued happiness for themselves ended up miserable. And that people who pursued happiness in others and objects outside themselves were happy. And I think in the end, this is ultimately what Hannah discovered through this process. And it's just beautiful. And we love bringing you these kind of stories. And again, randomactsofkindness.org. That's randomactsofkindness.org. When Hannah was losing hope, losing joy, she turned it around in the end by giving love and kindness to random strangers. Our next story is every bit as remarkable. Here's Chris Rosati being interviewed by Steve Hartman on CBS. And Hartman does such wonderful work. It's the sort of thing that makes us wonder as we listen to this. If we were in this man's position, could we be half as strong? All right. Chris Rosati is both in the prime of his life and at the end of it. About a year ago, this 42-year-old marketing vice president and father of two was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's obviously heartbreaking, but it's hardly the focus around here. In fact, after Chris found out, he did something few people with a terminal illness ever choose to do. He applied online for a job as a donut delivery man. Seriously. I knew I wouldn't get a job, but at least then I could say when they arrested me, hey man, I applied. What do you mean when they arrested you? Then the next step is you try to steal a truck. That's right. He said steal a truck. It was all part of this fantasy Chris dreamed up to stake out the Krispy Kreme Donut Factory near where he lives in Durham, North Carolina. Follow one of the drivers on a route and take his truck when the guy's not looking. And then just go around and give away the donuts. Kind of a Robin Hood kind of thing. Yeah, made it okay. Stealing cholesterol from the rich and giving to the poor. (laughs) I was going to go the nearest school because once I knew where... This plan has some holes in it. I'm not speaking donuts. It did. (laughs) You're just going to pull up to a school and say, oh, here, everybody, here's a bunch of donuts? Yeah. You know, now that you said that, I probably wouldn't. Not to mention the legal ramifications. One of the blessings of ALS is, what are they going to (laughs) do? In case you haven't figured out, Chris has a remarkable sense of humor about this. Which is partly why, when Krispy Kreme heard about his plotting through a Facebook post, they didn't threaten prosecution. All right. Instead... They offered transportation, specifically a bus, a bus stocked with donuts. The heist. And so, for an entire day, Chris, his family, and friends Line up. went on this rolling sugar high. You had two donuts? Joyfully delivering to city parks, cancer wards, Take care. and children's hospitals. We're glad to make some people smile. But the biggest smile of the day belonged to Chris himself. Remember, his original dream was to show up at a school. 
And here he was at his old high school. I got a thousand donuts on the bus. <laughs> Which leads us to what this was really all about. Chris says if dying has taught him anything, it's about how to live. Thank you for the warm welcome. He says you have to do what you can to make people smile while you still have the chance. He really wants kids especially to know that. Because if I can't impact people, this whole thing is a waste. This whole thing is a waste. And since that donut caper a few years ago, Chris has been slowly losing his ability to walk and speak. But with his wife and kids, the mission goes on. For example, the Rosati's held a red carpet premiere to showcase videos that community members made of their big ideas for the greater good. One young man set up a wheel of kindness outside of a mall. Shoppers would come by, give it a spin, and do whatever smile-creating act the wheel landed on, like hug ten strangers. Some others set up tables to help adults rediscover the simple, wonderful joy of coloring. Chris, like Hannah, he found his strength and happiness in serving others. Please go to randomactsofkindness.org to learn more about these two and so many others who could give up but chose instead to give love. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories is share these kind of stories, and we'd love to hear yours as well. And we'll be setting up on our website a simple space for you to write to us, and we can get right back to you. We'll also have a call and command center for you as well, because we want to hear random act of kindness stories from you too. This is Our American Network. That is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for screaming and shouting, try another venue. If you're looking for opinion and callers, my goodness, there are so many options. Our show, stories only and authors only. No pundits, no opinions. And for the next 30 minutes, we want to talk about a a fascinating book written by a, a really terrific writer named Jay Nordlinger. He's a senior editor of National Review. He writes about politics. He writes about art. He's a music critic of the New Criterion. His previous book book is Peace, They Say, a history of the Nobel Peace Prize. And Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan, long have been. Well, thanks so much. And Children of Monsters is the title. And, you know, I just wanted to get into one word before we go further. Monsters is often used as a playful term, Monsters, Inc., and you think away what we people talk about it. But some of us actually believe there are real-life monsters. Talk a bit about the use of that word, Jay. 
Well, I wanted something bold, of course, and descriptive. And when you're dealing with Hitler, Stalin, Mao, the Kims in North Korea, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein, the Assads, Papa Doc, I figured that monsters would be okay. Maybe a touch of hyperbole in some cases, but people get the drift. Close enough. And it, it, yes. it means so much more, and it, it connotes a world of good and evil. It connotes uh, a spiritual dimension. We had uh, just had on Tony Dolan to discuss some of Ronald Reagan's speeches, and uh, that dimension was there so deeply and so often. How did this co- yes. book? How did this book come about, Jay? Well, I was in Albania some years ago, and Albania had suffered one of the worst dictatorships of the whole 20th century. There was pretty much nothing else like it on Earth except for that Kim dictatorship in North Korea. And the Albanian dictator, Hoxha, admired Kim Il-sung and imitated him to a degree. And when I was there, I wondered, well, did Hoxha have children? And if so, what were their lives like? Uh, Could they go out? How did people treat them? Did they have to change their name? Did they have to leave the country? Were they proud? Were they ashamed? And uh, I thought that the Hoja children, and he did have three, might make a good magazine piece. And then I thought, well, you could do a survey of such sons and daughters, sons and daughters of dictators, and make a book of it called Children of Monsters. So I acted on it some years later. That's terrific. And, you know, as you were thinking about that, you know, there's sons of very wealthy people, and there must be some things that are in common that those kids have in common with very, very wealthy people. And 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 were there things you found before we get into the individual spaces? Were there commonalities, Jay, in the stories? Yes, and you're quite right about children of the wealthy. Of course, all of these dictators are wealthy. Really, uh, they plunder. They do other things. And some of the dictators' kids are spoiled brats. Uh, arrogant princes and princesses. Uh, some are more mild. Some are really scared and abused. So there's a mixture here, a variety, but they do have things in common. Uh, the main thing they have in common is that that unusual position or status of being the son or daughter of the dictator who is often the godhead, the little deity of the whole country. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, again, before we dig in, so you're, you're, you've got five kids, four kids, three kids. You know, when you read Shakespeare, the quest to replace that all-powerful one becomes a, a type of brotherly and sibling rivalry, the likes of which most of us can't understand, Jay. And to what degree do these powerful, because these monsters all have power, and so the kids, I think, one day may wish to have some of that power. Uh, talk about the effect that power has and the quest to replace or be above some of your siblings might have in terms of the familial structure itself, Jay. Well, that's so true. Uh, it creates sibling rivalry, to say the least. We see this in the Qaddafi family, where three or four brothers, and Qaddafi had seven sons, were vying to succeed the old man. In the end, he was brought down before it could happen. Uh, Assad. Uh, that is, uh, Hafez Assad had several sons. One was designated to be the successor, the eldest, but he was killed in a car crash. So the next one, uh, he was next in line, and that's Bashar, the current Assad. There was competition in North Korea. We've now had three Kims there. Uh, in Haiti, 
probably the most suited child of Papa Doc to be the next dictator was a daughter, but she was ruled out because of her sex, and that's true in other families too. So it had to be Baby Doc who was completely unsuited. So yes, absolutely this exists in these families, especially the bigger ones with a lot of brothers. Well, I always think of the lion in winter and that great scene where Catherine Hepburn playing Eleanor of Aquitaine is talking about all of the problems. Anthony Hopkins plays the son of the king. These sons are battling out because one of them will be king. The rest won't be. And there's this great moment where she says, as she looks around the carnage, every family has its ups and downs. And uh, <laughs> I, I guess it's just a little different in those families. Let's get specific if we can, Jay. Some sons succeed their fathers as dictator. Who are they? Well, uh, there are lots of them all over the world. I deal with only three cases, the Kims in North Korea and the Assads in Syria and the Duvaliers in Haiti. Uh, you have other Africans of whom this is true, too. But uh, the dynastic principle or instinct is alive in dictatorships, as in uh, monarchies. And, of course, we have sons following fathers in democratic politics, but I think that's different uh, because these are all democratic choices. Uh, for example, Americans have long elected Adamses and Harrisons and Tafts and Roosevelts and Kennedys and Clintons and Bushes and more. Has a daughter ever become a dictator, Jay? I don't think so. Now, in history, there have been queens with what you might call dictatorial power. And there was a relatively brief uh, period in India, the emergency rule presided over by Indira. I don't know if that qualifies as a dictatorship. But in the main, a dictatorship seems to be a man's business. Jay, you have, Jay, you have included here um, Hitler. What's he yeah. doing in your book? He didn't have kids. I mean, he had shepherds, but that wasn't going to do much for <laughs> an inheritance of power. <laughs> You mean dogs, Lee? Yes, German Shepherds, that Did is. He? Yeah. Huh. Right. Yeah, of course. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, um, he didn't have kids. Everyone knows that. But there was a claimant. There was a man who claimed to be Hitler's son, a Frenchman. More specifically, his mother claimed that this was true. And um, probably this fellow, Jean-Marie Loret, was not the son of Hitler. Uh, but the key question for me is... Uh, he believed himself to be the son of Hitler. So what effect did this have on him? And the answer was very, very bad. And he may not have been Hitler's son, Loray, but he looked a heck of a lot like him. And so for that matter, does his son, the alleged grandson, Philippe, who lives in France with two portraits of Hitler on his living room wall. And uh, one of my little jokes is you would think one portrait would have been enough. Yeah, you would think. You know, we're talking to Jay Nordlinger. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories and his fabulous new book, Children of Monsters. And you can catch all that we're doing on the web at ouramericannetwork.org. And you can also catch all of this live each night. And we love to do also, Jay, with our partners this day in histories. And, folks, you can catch those as well. Our Hamilton is up on the line uh, and we caught some remarkable interviews with the author of that great book and even some sound bites with a playwright from a 60 Minutes interview that occurred uh, about six or seven months ago when the, when the play was just first getting the attention it so deserves. 
More with Jay Nordlinger after this. Again, this is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. No news, no opinion, no screaming and yelling, just stories, great writers. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And visit us at ouramericannetwork.org. A couple of our favorites that are posted, a great profile on Coach Saban and his father and how his father shaped who he became. And also right above it, a remarkable column from the Wall Street Journal that was performed by us by Keith Blanchard, in which he finally lived up to the promise that he had always made his dad, to take him out to Baja, to big, big fish country, to hunt for marlin and fish for marlin. It's a beautiful father-son story. And right now we're talking to Jay Nordlinger, who's one of America's most versatile and, I think, witty writers. And uh, Jay joins us now because we're here to promote his book, and it's a remarkable read, Children of Monsters. Jay, thanks again for joining us. Oh, thank you. You know, father-sons, I mean, it's, it's classic. It's every Arthur Miller play when you really think about it. Let's talk about some fathers and sons in particular. Paul Pot, what kind of a father was he, and what's it like being a son to a man like this? Well, Paul Pot had a child late in life after his Khmer Rouge regime fell. He was about 60. This was a second wife, and he had a girl. And uh, he died when she was 12. And apparently he treated her with great affection and tenderness, and she feels very warmly toward him. Pol Pot was, of course, a genocidal monster whose regime killed somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of the whole Cambodian population. It's hard to imagine him as a father, but he was that pretty late in life when he was in the jungle hanging out with his comrades, never to regain power. He had this daughter and apparently a very sweet relationship with her. And she's a beautiful young woman of about 30 now who got married last year. And one interesting fact about her tidbit is that she earned a master's degree in English literature, of all things. And the reason I I speak in this way about that is that her father and his gang would kill people merely because they wore glasses which, which suggested that they had read something and therefore might pose a danger to the regime. And here, uh, brother number one, as Pol Pot was called, his daughter uh, went on to get a master's degree in English literature. That's just one of those weird twists of history, I would say. Well, it's a twist of history, but it also tells us, Jay, that monsters aren't all monsters, and not everything is all black and white. I think this is what art does so well for all of us. It humanizes everything, and if we're Christians particularly, uh, well, we believe there's uh, evil in all of us. And uh, it's not, though it is surprising, in the end, you know, anything can happen in this world. 
What is the ghastliest or most eye-popping story in the book, Jay? Well, there are a lot of them, certainly involving the Gaddafi sons and Saddam Hussein and his two little monster sons. Uh, Bokassa, the so-called emperor of Central Africa, he crowned himself emperor Napoleon style in a cathedral. Uh, he did terrible, terrible things. Uh, so my book is full of these tales, but I must say that it is leavened with some humor and some streaks of light, some inspiration. Uh, this book does have a ghoulish side, a macabre side, even a kind of sensationalistic or tabloid side. But there is also some uplift, I'm happy to say. Otherwise, I, I, I couldn't have borne to write it. Well, tell me this. Which of the children of all the ones you covered had the most interesting life's journey, Jay? I would say it's hard to top Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's daughter, who had a long, rocky, turbulent life, a seeking life, a life of a seeker. She, in fact, defected from the Soviet Union in 1967 and wrote three memoirs, two of which are terrific and enduring, and the other of which is interesting. And I do admire Svetlana. She could be pretty callous at times and more than a little crazy, but frankly, given her background, who can really blame her? I think she did about as well as she could under the circumstances. Tell me about some of that uh, some of that writing of hers. What did she write about, and what was she searching for, do you think, in the end? Well, uh, she wrote about uh, her life with father. Wasn't that a TV show, Lee? I can't <laughs> yep. remember, the life with father. Uh, she wrote about that. She wrote about the Kremlin court, about the Soviet Union, and her own personal experiences uh, with men and other people. And she really wrote quite beautifully. Uh, she was always seeking for religion. Uh, she converted, I think, in the late 1950s to Orthodox Christianity in the Soviet Union. And she tried all sorts of other religions when she was in the West. She moved around constantly. She even redefected, so to speak, to the Soviet Union. And thanks to the rise of Gorbachev, was let out. Um, so she was a restless seeker. And eventually, um, she died pretty anonymously in a Wisconsin nursing home when she was in her mid-80s, three or four years ago. If you can imagine this woman born in the Kremlin, the princess of the whole vast USSR in the 1920s, she goes on to die pretty quietly in a Wisconsin nursing home. Quite a cinematic arc, don't you think? I mean, rarely do stories start and end like that. It's remarkable. What does your book tell us, Jay, about the age-old argument between nature versus nurture? Dig into that if you could. Well, you know, I I don't really do much with that. As as our illustrious president said in another context, that's above my pay grade. (laughs) Right, right. And I'll tell you why. This is the example I cite. Ceausescu in Romania had two sons, uh, Valentin and Niku. And the younger one, Niku, was a perfect little dad, and his mother, for that matter, Elena. He was a terrible person who hurt a lot of people. He pretty much spent his life swaggering and raping and killing and sort of dictating his way through Romania, though he was not dictator yet. Could have been if his father hadn't fallen. And he did this until essentially he drank himself to death when he was in his early 40s. 
Vasily Stalin, by the way, one of Stalin's sons before him, did just the same thing in the Soviet Union. So that was Niku. The other Ceausescu son, Valentin, as far as I know, has never harmed a hair on anyone's head. He never wanted anything to do with politics or dictatorship or power. He studied physics and joined a scientific institute that he's still at on the outskirts of Bucharest. They couldn't be more different. And so where does that leave me with nature nurture? It, I really, um, that's why I, I don't say too much about it, because as soon as I say one thing, I can contradict it with another thing. Yeah, and that's welcome to being a parent with a few kids. I think we all have been there. I know my parents would look at the four of their children and go, oh, my goodness, so very different outcomes. How are they? Such very different kids, same exact parenting. They didn't change. They just didn't have as much control as any parent thinks they might have over the outcome. Uh, Talk about uh, dictators' scars left behind, the emotional ones particularly, Jay, uh, let alone other kinds. Uh, Some of these people never recover. Uh, They live in the shadow of their father. They're haunted. They're despised. Sometimes they kill themselves Sometimes they're poor, destitute, but others of them, uh, they live very good lives, at least materially. They still have loot, wealth. There's always a cadre of loyalists and defenders around them, and there's a lot of denial. I'll tell you something I put in the afterword of my book. While I was writing this book, I passed a sign in New York for a Broadway show, Jersey Boys, which is about early rock and roll. It's the Frankie Valley story. Mm-hmm. And the tagline on the poster was, everyone remembers it how they need to. And I thought, how interesting, because that is true of these men and women, the sons and daughters, the kids, as I call them, I'm writing about. Most of them remember it how they need to. They twist it so as not to go completely nuts. I quote in my book, the old Solzhenitsyn maxim, live not by lies. That's one reason I admire Svetlana. She eventually rose to live not by lies. But a lot of them do live by lies. And believe me, I don't excuse them at all. But I do understand them. I think they're really remembering it the way they have to. Yeah, how else could they cope in the end, Jay? It's a coping mechanism in the end for some of these people. And dare us not judge being born in a a situation like that. By the way, I love the fact that you talked about Idi Amin, who had 60 kids with 21 different women, and was actually, as you put it, a busy man. <laughs> yeah, very busy, but a much-loved lo- father to his children. I wanted to end with this, and we got about a minute and a half left. Does the book say something about the blessings, if any, of a free society and the rule of law? Talk, uh, talk about that as we close things out, Jay. You know, not really, Lee, uh, but some of my readers have taken that away from their reading. Mark Halpern said, for example, it made him so grateful for liberal democracy and the rule of law and some sort of accountability. And um, I think he said something like, thank God I live here under this American constitutional order. And other readers have had that same reaction. So I didn't aim for it. Uh, But I'm glad that people took this away. Uh, The rule of law is a relatively uncommon thing in history. Most people don't have it. And we're supposed, we, the United States, are supposed to be a nation of laws, not men. And sometimes we see a break, a breakdown here or there. And I frankly haven't been very happy with the Obama presidency. But thank God we get another shot at it. We have rotation in office and future elections and essentially the rule of law. So dictatorship is a dangerous and seductive thing. 
and um, glad we don't live under it. You bet. And always our transitions are peaceful. We're talking with Jay Nordlinger, the book Children of Monsters. Thank you so much, Jay, for joining us. Thanks a million, Lee. You bet. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and you can catch all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll be back after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love music here. Americans love music. And my goodness, we've invented all kinds of music. You're listening to Elton John, who came to America and fell in love with our blues music. This song, Benny and the Jets, Benny and the Jets, well, it topped the R&B charts, and Elton became the first white person to ever perform on Soul Train, which had been an ambition of his. A deep ambition. Imagine that, a white British kid hung up. We learned that about Robert Plant. White British kid comes to the Delta, to Clarksdale, Mississippi, learns the blues, goes back to England, forms a little band called Led Zeppelin. Well, today for the hour, we're going to spend some time on a list that Jesse stumbled upon on the web, omgfacts.com, the top 20 records of all time, by just sheer sales, not opinion, not Rolling Stone and the Sherpas over there and gurus telling us what to think about what the best music is. No, this is just the music the, com- the, the country bought. The American people voted, and these were the biggest records of all time. And that's Elton John's Benny and the Jets from Elton John's Greatest Hits, the 1974 compilation album, and the 11th official release for Elton. And it topped the charts in the United States and the United Kingdom, staying at number one for 10 consecutive weeks, which is a lifetime. And it's his best-selling album to date, being his first to have received an RIAA Diamond certification for U.S. sales at more than 16 million copies, which is why it's on this list. And we're going to rip through these for the hour. We're going to rip through all 20. Actually, we have 21. And my favorite on the record is Track number six, Jesse, Rocket Man, and it just always feels like the first time when I hear this. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a timeless flight Touchdown brings me round again to 
doesn't get much better than that folks that was off his honky chateau record and that was when elton was merging country influences a lot of steel guitars on that record really simple americana you'd call it today sounds and cliche but it takes you on a ride yeah, it's <laughs> it so does. big did he write that the for room. the movie no, he just no. wrote it, and then it's been used a hundred different ways. I was just kidding. Yeah. You know the movie Rocket Man? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not a funny joke. That was oh, like well. 20 years out. That's why yeah. it was funny. <laughs> All right, well, the number 20, and we did a well, we did a whole segment on not only this song, but we also did a real honorarium on and a tribute to Glenn Fry, who co-wrote this song. And the record is Hotel California. It's the fifth studio album by the Eagles and one of the best selling of all time three singles The New Kid in Town Life in the Fast Lane and this the title track it sold 16 million copies in the United States alone let's listen to Don Henley Henley Number 19 is a little British band that sold a hell of a lot of records in the United States. And there's Led Zeppelin. We were talking just about Robert Plant a bit ago. And go on our website, ouramericannetwork.org, and listen to our half hour on Robert Plant and his two trips to America to discover himself. First the blues, and then later on in his life, American Roots music and the band of joy. Physical Graffiti is their sixth studio album. And my goodness, it doesn't get better. My favorite, by the way, of all the Zeppelin records. And that's because it has track number six, Cashmere, on it. Jimmy Page comes up with this riff. And then that distinctive voice of Robert Plant coming in over the guitars, over the great drum work of John Bonham.
This was not a single record, by the way. It was a double. And the songs aren't short. The songs are complex. They take you places that you... Well, only Zeppelin could take you on. And very few choruses and breakdowns. Very unusual writing. A very unusual and brilliant band. Let's go out with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Number 19, Physical Graffiti. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Top 20 albums. We're going through them this hour of all time. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love music, and we love to talk about music and play music and tell stories. And, well, the greatest music always tells a story, and actually it brings you back to places. And it brings you back to places in ways almost nothing else does. So you're listening to Metallica's Enter Sandman. And this is number 18. From the list that Jesse dug up from omgfacts.com, the top 20 records of all time, not opinion, just record sales. How the American public voted with their pocketbooks, with their money. So this isn't about opinions, folks. This is just omgfacts.com. We thought it was fun. We thought we'd rip through them for you because we were surprised at some of them. And some of them were like, OMG, why are they here? Yeah, there's no way that that black, that black album of Metallica is, is better than Injustice for All or Ride the Lightning. A lot of Metallica fans didn't like this album because it was considered their sellout album. I remember when it came out. Yeah. I remember. It was in 89 or 90. I remember that. Yeah. And it was just not that great. It wasn't classic Metallica. I you think guys they are snobs. The people have spoken. The people have spoken. <laughs> Forget the people. <laughs> 16 million people were wrong. Hangler. A reporter approached, uh, approached the drummer, Lars Ulrich, about, uh, about this album. And he says, have you guys sold out? And Lars said, yeah, we sold out. We sell out every night. <laughs> that's pretty funny and that's why Lars is a drummer and not a stand up Yeah. well let me tell you who didn't sell out because everybody thought these guys were sort of sellouts anyway this is just a straight pop band and it's of course Cracked Rear View by Hootie and the Blowfish and of course Hold My Hand was just a gigantic gigantic hit for them were mostly positive, but soon thereafter, the critics started really dumping on Hootie and the Blowfish. But let me tell you, they sold a lot of records. 16 million. Makes want to get my million. hacky sack out and go throw a Frisbee in the park or it something. It does. It does. <laughs> Takes you back. 
Did you guys hear about Hootie's car? Did no. he do something crazy with his car? Uh-uh. Put like military equipment or something. I, and I like how everybody calls the lead singer Hootie. His name's not Hootie. He's not Hootie. That <laughs> <laughs> no, was just to set you up, Greg. Thanks. <laughs> well, let's go to number 16. And it's a country act and a great writer. Say what you want about this guy, whatever you think about this guy. He writes his stuff. And his name is Garth Brooks. And, well, in 1990, No Fences reached number one on the Billboard Top Country Album charts. And, my goodness, this one sold a couple of records, too. 17 million. And, well, it doesn't, I don't think there's a better bar song than this one by Garth. And, well, the lyrics are just so darn good. <laughs> Blame it all on my roots I showed up in boots And ruined your blind tie affair The last one to know The last one to show I was the last one you thought you'd see there And I saw the surprise And the fear in his eyes When I took his glass of champagne I toasted you, said, honey, we may be thrilled, but you'll never hear me complain. Cause I got friends in long places where the whiskey... And Garth, well, he went on to sell so many more records. I don't think there was a bigger selling country act. Meanwhile, his favorite acts were rock acts. Billy Joel, too. James Taylor. Alex, did you ever sing this one in a bar? Yeah, it was like 3 a.m. Jesse and I were talking <laughs> oh, no. about earlier. This is one of the few karaoke songs we've done. Nice. Yeah. With, a, with a bunch of friends. Guilty. We want the video. We want the video. Well, now we get to number 15, and this takes me back to my, well, my high school days. And I'll never forget hearing this for the first time through a car speaker and going, what the heck is this? And it was this band called Boston. And there was this song, this song. And it was the way they layered the guitars. And, I mean, we played this. Everybody played this until, well, you couldn't listen to it anymore. And then you listen to it some more. funny is having a few drinks and trying to get through the chorus and nobody knew the words nobody knew them i feel like a zombie i feel like i'm zoning and it doesn't matter and we don't even want to know what the words are there number are, there are more i think there are more boston cover bands in los angeles than any other uh, band. wow yep. yeah and uh, by the way that one sold 17 million copies too my goodness not a bad not a bad debut record next on the list well it's a soundtrack from a movie 
And we just covered one of the writers of the big songs on this, Dolly Parton. And Whitney Houston belted it out. And I think it's why the, the soundtrack sold as many copies as it did. And, of course, it was the soundtrack to The Bodyguard. And this one, well, it was Whitney and Clive Davis. And Clive, my goodness, we've got to do an hour on Clive Davis because he's another one of those, another one of those record impresarios like Ahmed Ertigan, uh, who we covered, who is the founder of Atlantic Records. And go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org, and listen to that hour, the man who discovered Ray Charles, who took the Stones to a new place, and Led Zeppelin and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin. It just goes on and on. One guy. Well, 17 million copies, and the hit song that everybody knows and everybody remembers, Dolly's own, I Will Always Love You. If I should stay I would only be in your way so I'll go but I know I'll think of you every step of the way and I Whatever kind of music you listen to, it doesn't get much better in terms of pure singing and pure writing than that. And I'm not a big pop fan, but oh my goodness, if you don't get moved by that, you got to examine your heart, chuck yourself into a clinic, (laughs) get the thing cleaned out, heal thyself. Let's hear a little bit more from Whitney. And when we come back, we'll dig into the Beatles, Guns N' Roses, so much more. This is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch all of what we do. Today, the top 20 best-selling records of all time compiled by omgfacts.com with a little help from Jesse Edwards. More after this.
Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the top 20 selling albums of all time. And I mean gross record sales. No opinions here, nothing subjective. Bicker with these numbers if you like, but the American people voted with their wallets. And this was assembled by OMGFacts.com. And we thought, what the heck, let's rip through these. And this one, of course, well, that's the Beatles. But it's not from Revolver, which is where the song originally appeared. It's actually from the Beatles 1967 to 1970, widely known as the Blue Album. There was a Red Companion as well. And this one sold 17 million records. Number 13. And my goodness, uh, there are so many big hits on this that you just you can't go through the Beatles catalog without just being humbled. And they did it all in about six years. In about six years, they wrote some of the best records of all time. Next on the list, number 12. This may be the greatest opening guitar riff to any song ever written, my humble opinion. My wife's favorite band. So you don't mess with that. And the record, Appetite for Destruction, the band, well, we know the band, and it's Guns and Roses. Let's take a listen. That was 1987. Wow. Geffen Records. Over and over, Geffen Records just found the talent. Way back when, when they signed Laura Nairo and a little girl named Joni Mitchell. Then through rock and roll, then right up to the Counting Crows. I mean, I could just go on and on with the the talent Geffen and his guys had for finding talent. This record, the best-selling debut album ever. 11th best-selling album in the United States. 18 million sold. Not bad. Let's look at number 11. Oh my goodness, we're back to that British band. And an album known as the White Album. And the George Harrison composition, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, may be one of the best, but my goodness, you could argue over and over again about which one was the best. A double record. And that's the thing about the Beatles. Harrison could come in and slay you. Then Lennon would come in with one of his compositions, McCartney with one of his. Everything said Lennon and McCartney, but the fact of the matter is, if you know anything about the Beatles, one of them generally wrote most of the song, and then the other one would take it over the hump, so they just shared writing credit. But this was written solely by George Harrison. Let's take a listen. Now we're cracking into the top ten. Another British band. And a blues band. Again, they started with the blues, with a guy named Mick Fleetwood in the pit. And then ultimately, 
they just kept adding great singers and songwriters. And the band is Fleetwood Mac. And the album, Rumors, a perfect record. And, well, the big hit on that record, well, it was this. Lindsey Buckingham, Go Your Own Way. Take a listen. so interesting about this band is they had multiple singers so you'd go from a, a rocker like this to something like track two and the remarkable vocals of stevie nicks into the top ten and we're down to number nine and Come On Over was the third studio album recorded by this Canadian singer Shania Twain released in 1997 and it sold a whopping 20 million copies 20 million copies love Shania don't love her she's on this list and here's just one of the big tracks that everybody knows from this moment on. From this moment Life has begun From this moment You are the one Right beside you Is where I belong From Now we're looking at number eight, and he's already had one on this list, No Fences, and Double Live is the first and only live album by an American country music artist to chart as it did, and again, it's Garth Brooks, a two-disc live album that sold 21 million copies, and The Dance, which Garth wrote, Maybe one of his finest. Let's take a listen. Looking back on memory of the dance we share, eight stars for a moment of. The world was right 
How could I have known You'd ever say goodbye And that Glad I didn't know it all would end. And we're going to now squeeze in the number seven album And it's the seventh studio album by an Australian band And the album is Back in Black And well, you shook me all night long They still play it at every stadium in America Every time Every time, and it still rocks the house Guess how many copies? 22 million This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Story The top 20 albums of all time, we're running through them Right here We'll be back with more We'll go out With You Shook Me All Night Long By ACDC This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're hearing the opening riff from Billy Joel's Piano Man. We're ripping through the top 20 albums of all time, not subjective, the top 20 sellers of all time. OMGFacts.com put out the list. We were just loving it, so we figured let's spend an hour and rip through it. And this is Billy Joel's greatest hits collection, double album, sold 23 million copies. And... Well, this was one of the greatest songs. This launched his career, this song. But what made Billy Billy was his ballads. When you'd go to a concert and break everything down, and then there was no denying this guy's talent as a writer and a singer, because there he was alone at Madison Square Garden and playing something like this. She's got a way about her I know that I can't live without her She's got a way of pleasing mm, I don't know why it is But there doesn't have to be a reason anyway And now we're getting to number five And it was the 11th studio album by this English progressive rock band Some call them Floyd and it's Pink Floyd. And again, we did a great segment on this song, how it was made, how it got stuck in the studio, and what unstuck it. And we don't want to tell you anymore. Go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org, and hear the story. As told by Roger Waters and some of the school kids who actually recorded the chorus, that background of the chorus. 
And we're listening to another Brick in the Wall, Part 2. This record sold, well, in 1979, it was released. And 23 million purchases later, this made its way to number 5 on the list. And now we get to number four, and, well, it's the same same band. It's Pink Floyd, and it's the dark side of the moon, and it sold 24 million albums. It was an immediate success. Recorded in Abbey Road Studios in London in two sessions, in 1972 and 1973. The group used some of the most advanced recording techniques of the time, including multi-track recording and tape loops. Let's take a listen to Time. many bands like it before and since and you just have to put that record on and play it from beginning to end and by the way if you have vinyl and you got a great great turntable nothing sounds better than vinyl and thanks to thank goodness for the hipsters they're bringing vinyl back and now on to number three the untitled fourth studio album by the english rock band led zeppelin Physical Graffiti was there earlier. Known as Four, Led Zeppelin Four. Produced by Jimmy Page. Recorded between 1970 and 71 at several locations. Mostly in a home. In England. A home recording. Can you imagine that? Four had so many great songs. Black Dog, Rock and Roll, Misty Mountain Hop, Going to California. And of course... It had this, their signature song, the song everybody wished they'd written. Yes, 
The record would go on to sell 25 million albums. Not bad. And of course, when John Bonham died, so did Zeppelin. And how many bands, when they lose a drummer, fold it up? And that's how tight a band this was. And that's how great a drummer John Bonham was. People may not have liked the record labels, and they're dead now. But YouTube is not producing this kind of music, folks. It just ain't. Now, I can't wait for the labels to make a resurgence, for an A&R guy to find a band like this, and Ahmad Ertigan to get behind a band like this. There's no chorus. This is an eight-minute song. It has no beginning and middle and end in a way. It's just one seamless piece of art. Now we're on to number two. A very different kind of record, but what a big one. And it's Thriller. Epic Records, Michael Jackson. Recorded at Westlake Recording Studio in L.A. With a budget of $750,000, a pretty big one back then. And assisted by a guy who knew a thing or two about making records. Way back to the great records he made with Frank Sinatra. Q, Quincy Jones. The album's nine tracks, four were written by Jackson, seven singles were released from the album, all of which were released, all of which were made, all of which made the top ten on the Billboard Hot 100. It would go on to sell 29, 29 million records. Let's take a listen to Thriller. And what Jackson did with his videos was as remarkable as what he did with this record. And I think whatever you thought of MTV, at its height, it was such a pleasure. And one day we'll have to do the top 20 MTV videos of all time. But Jackson took making videos to another place. Another place. And that brings us to the number one record of all time. They had one earlier. And it was a little hit called Hotel California. But this record, The Eagles' Greatest Hits, well, it was the first compilation album by The Eagles. It was released in 76. If you own a car and you drive and you don't have this record, there's something wrong with you. 
or you're just a hater from this really great band from California because they had a lot of haters. But it was the best-selling album in the United States and the best-selling album of the 20th century. It would go on to sell over 30 million albums. Let's take a listen to Take It Easy. sound of your own wheels drive you crazy Lighten up while you still can Don't even try to understand Just find a place to make your stand Take it easy Maybe it was because they were too good looking. Maybe it was because the girls liked them. Maybe it was because those melodies were so sweet. Maybe it was because they were such great singers. Maybe it was because they were such great writers. So many people had no respect for this band, but the numbers don't lie on this one, folks. 40 million. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the 20 best-selling albums of all time, brought to you by our team. Thanks, Jesse, for all the work on this. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all of what we do. We